Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, voters across the United States will have their last opportunity to go to the polls and vote in this, the midterm elections. It is a critical election that will determine which party, Democrats or Republicans, will control the House of Representatives as well as the U.S. Senate. Additionally, there are many other key elections across the country, including governors, mayors, and by the way, in Los Angeles, there is a contentious race for mayor between a former community organizer from South Los Angeles and a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, Karen Bass, and billionaire Rick Caruso, a former Republican who used his millions to fund his campaign. And additionally, on ballots across the country are state representatives, local and statewide propositions, and much more. Many are calling this election one of the most critical as it comes at a time that the country is greatly polarized with the influence of Donald Trump still strongly felt. This election will determine the direction of the country. Will it go in the direction of Italy, for example, and shift further to the right? And if so, what does that say about the state of civil rights, women's and LGBTQ rights, immigrants' rights, ecological devastation, and much more? Yes, there's a lot at stake. If you haven't already voted, please be sure to vote today. If you have issues figuring out where to vote, go to your city or county vote website. For example, those of you in Los Angeles, go to lavote.gov. That's lavote.gov to find your polling station. On today's show, we will bring you a special on the significance and importance of voting and the right to defend the fight to defend the vote. You will hear the main speakers and other program participants at a recent Get Out the Vote webinar organized by the California Poor People's Campaign. Speakers include Shannon Rivers, who opens the webinar with a land acknowledgement, followed by attorney and voting rights icon Barbara Arnwine, who is with the Transformative Justice Coalition. The Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who is the joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. She is a joint coordinator along with Bishop William Barber. Reverend Liz Theo Harris is also with the Kairos Center. You will also hear Alan Minsky with Progressives for Democracy and longtime community organizer and co-founder of Tia Chuches Community Center in the San Fernando Valley, Tri Rodriguez. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. 
For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Control of Congress and Democrats say the future of democracy hang in the balance on the final day of voting in midterm elections. All 435 seats in the House and one-third of the Senate seats are being contested. Election deniers are on the ballot at the local, state, and federal levels. President Biden campaigned in Maryland last night. Christopher Martinez reports. President Joe Biden spoke Monday evening at a Democratic National Committee event in Bowie, Maryland. He was endorsing the Democratic candidate for governor, Wes Moore, who could become the third African-American elected governor in the nation's history and, after Inauguration Day, likely the only current one. Biden says Moore's Republican opponent, Dan Cox, is an election denier and supported the January 6th attack on the nation's capital. For Wes Moore, patriotism meant leaving his family and putting on a country's uniform and leading his fellow soldiers in combat. His opponent, patriotism meant putting on a baseball cap, inviting people to attack the Capitol. You can't be pro-American and pro-insurrection. It's real simple. Biden also praised local Democrats who are running for Congress. Right now, the Senate is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, while in the House of Representatives, a change of as few as five seats could flip control to the Republicans. I'm Christopher Martinez. Former President Trump campaigned in Ohio for Senate Republican candidate J.D. Vance. He once again teased the possibility of an early announcement that he'll make another run for president. I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the attack on her husband will affect her decision on whether to remain in Congress after the midterm election. Pelosi's voice cracked with emotion as she said in a CNN interview she was sad because of her husband, but also sad for the country. She called on Republicans to stop the misinformation that is fueling political violence and urged Americans to vote to defend our democracy. The Justice Department is sending monitors to 64 jurisdictions in 24 states in an effort to ensure compliance with federal voting rights laws in the midterm elections. Alex Gonzalez reports. Officials from the Department of Justice confirmed they are expanding in-person monitoring of polling locations following threats, incidents, and attempts to interfere with the election process. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the president hopes the country's ideals are upheld at the polls. Violence has no place in our democracy. He will continue to uh, condemn violence, as you've heard him say, as you've heard me say from this very podium. He believes other leaders of both parties have a responsibility to communicate just that. Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, tweeted Monday that independent-minded voters should choose a Republican Congress given the presidency is Democratic, and later clarified that his historical party affiliation had always been independent with a voting history consisting entirely of Democrats until now. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The leader of a small island nation, Tuvalu Prime Minister Kautia Natano, is proposing a treaty against fossil fuels at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. The idea of a non-proliferation treaty for coal, oil, and natural gas has been advanced by churches, including the Vatican, and some scientists. But Natano's speech gives it a bigger boost in front of a global audience. Natano said it's getting too hot and there's very little time to slow and reverse the increasing temperature. He said, therefore, it's essential to prioritize fast-acting strategies that avoid the most warming. 
Small island nation leaders also called for a global tax on the profits of fossil fuel corporations that are making billions of dollars of profit during a global energy crisis triggered by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda said while the fossil fuel industry is profiting, the planet is burning. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes testified in his seditious conspiracy trial that there was no plan for his group of extremists to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. He told jurors he had no idea his followers were going to join the pro-Donald Trump mob to storm the Capitol and that he was upset after he found out that some did. Text messages on the day of the attack, though, tell a different story. In them, Rhodes referred to Trump supporters who entered the Capitol's actual patriots, and rather than telling his followers to stay away from the attack, he called them to the area. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines, and today, a big day, it's voting day. And those of you who have not yet voted, please go vote. Much of the future of us all depends in part on the results of today's election. None of us can afford to sit this one out. Not voting is in and of itself a vote. Today, we bring you voices from a recent webinar encouraging us all to vote. Let us go now to hear excerpts from the California Poor People's Campaign Voter Information Webinar. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Are you going to be a part of this movement? My name is Shannon Rivers. I am Akamir Autumn. I am from Arizona, and I want to do a brief land acknowledgement. What is a land acknowledgement? A land acknowledgement is a formal statement that recognizes and respects indigenous peoples, indigenous peoples of North America, specifically where we are as a traditional, as indigenous peoples are the traditional stewards of this land and their enduring leadership that exists between indigenous peoples and their traditional territories. So I am calling in from the land of the Tongva, the Achaman, the Ohlone, the Chumash, Southern California, and I wanna thank you all for being here. Uh, I am too a settler to this society or to this territory. I live in Los Angeles. I am from Arizona, and so I wanna be a good steward, and I want us to remember that wherever you are on this land, on the Americas, there you are on indigenous land. So thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being part of this movement on behalf of the PPC in California. Good afternoon. My name is Ted Burnett, and I'm part of the statewide coordinating committee of the California Poor People's Campaign. And I have the honor of introducing a great lady, Barbara Onwine, who's the president and founder of the Washington, D.C.-based uh, Transformative Justice Coalition. She is also the former president and CEO of a Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. She is currently on the 14-state, 26-city uh, get-out-the-vote and education about the Civil Rights Voting Rights Act. And her bus tour is to educate people about voting rights and voter suppression, past, present, and future. And she is also fighting for uh, the education for us to know about the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act of 1870 that allowed 500,000 free Black men to vote, which enabled them to elect the first Black U.S. Senator from Mississippi in 1870, Hiram Rose Revelle, 
even though racism didn't allow him to be seated till later. So I welcome Barbara Arnwine with her testimony. First of all, thank you for the honor of speaking with you today about one of the most important things in our country at this moment, and that is the upcoming midterm elections and the need for every eligible voter to vote. People forget that the right to vote is one that women, people of color, youth have fought for so hard over the many centuries of this country. And it has not been a right that has been given freely. In fact, to this day, there's still a lot of dispute about a right versus a privilege. But the bottom line is that those of us who are age eligible and entitled to vote should exercise that right. You know, democracy fundamentally is about a competition of ideas. No one's gonna ever see everything the same, but it is critical that we use our vote as our voice to be heard loudly in our democracy. What does that mean? For women right now, it's all about what we call Rovember. And that is after the Dobbs decision that hurt women and our right to choose. We wanna be heard. People always tell me, Barbara, it's a question about choice. No, for black women, it's a question about life. People don't know, but after the Dobbs um, Amendment was actually passed by the Mississippi legislature, within that first year of its operation and its prohibition on abortion, the mortality rate the maternal mortality rate for black women went up 30%. Black women died who did not need to die because of the lack of being able to exercise the proper choice over their body. People think that, well, you know, I voted for somebody and they didn't do what I wanted them to do. But that's because we forget that democracy is not about just the vote. It's about holding people accountable. And our votes should be holding people accountable. If they don't do what they said they were going to do, if they don't represent our viewpoints, then we ought to be able to make that hurt. People say, oh, well, Barbara, you know, I'm a Californian. You know, California, we, you know, we are the last. We vote late. Nobody waits for our results. We calling elections and all of these issues. And why does it even matter for me? Let me be very clear. I'm a native-born Californian <laughs> in the Southern California, born in good old Long Beach, California, raised all over Southern California, a little bit of Northern California. And I'm going to tell you, California counts. If we had not had California as the, the three million and more votes, all the votes that helped to create the differential between elections, we would still be dealing with the big lie. People would be saying, oh, you know, there's a, you know, the election was stolen, all of this. But the popular vote was made so large because California voted. 
And Californians, you got to understand, the big lie is dangerous. It's not just a anti-Trump thing or anti-MAGA thing. It is about people understanding the criticality and the importance of the popular vote. And when you vote, and you vote as progressively as your state has voted, you change the landscape. People look at California and say, oh my goodness, look what they are doing on environmental justice. You're affecting the entire nation right now on the question of environmental justice. People look around, they say, you know, what about police accountability? You know, California's been out there dealing with these issues in such a positive and aggressive way. Everything's not perfect. Government never is. But it's better to have a government that reflects the people than not. You know, our fight in democracy right now is for a truly representative democracy. People don't think about this, but look around you. Look from state to state to state. What are you going to see that's really interesting? One is that the number of people under the age of 40 who are in state legislatures is almost de minimis. And yet the largest voting cohort in this country right now, and certainly by 2024, are young people under 40 who are eligible voters. When you think about why is it that our policies on gun control nationwide don't match the sentiments of American polling data, when you think about why are there these deltas between people's beliefs about free college tuition and what government offers, it's because we're lacking a representative government. Can you imagine if, in fact, 50% of state legislatures were people between 18 and 40? Would you see what you're seeing now? Because right now, most legislators throughout the states in this United States, including Congress, are over 60 and they are white and male. So we got to think about that. Women, women, most state legislatures, you find me a couple, you got a couple like Nevada and a few, but most state legislatures are less than 30% women. How does that make any sense? When we dominate the electorate, 52% of all voters are going to be women. So how is it, again, that we're underrepresented? So part of the fight is to get there, not to mention people of color and the fact that we have whole states right now that have no people of color in the state legislatures that were elected into what I call statewide offices. So secretary of state, AG, attorney general, governor. You have states like Mississippi that's never had one, not one elected. Not to mention the fact that not one Black woman has ever been a governor of a state, even though in states like good old California, named for Queen Khalifa, the Black African queen, that you still have that absence. I mean, I think it's time for us to be thinking about truly representative government, not just that that diversity of identification, but that diversity of viewpoints, the ability for people who are truly committed to certain principles in our society to have their voices heard. So when you hear all this stuff about, oh, well, my vote don't count, are you serious? I mean, we have elections right now. The average congressional election for many years has been decided by 2,000 votes. Really? And you're not, you're going to say your vote doesn't count when we got a Congress that is not representative of our 
visions who think that January 6th, a lot of them was an appropriate, quote, public protest? Are you kidding me? When we have these kinds of discrepancies in life, and I always tell people, from the minute you get up in the morning to the minute you go to sleep at night, government affects your life. The minute you get up in the morning and you turn on your lights, government regulates your utilities. When you turn on your water to bathe your face, government determines your utilities. When you get up and you put on your clothing, the quality of your clothing, the protection of the clothing, what you eat for breakfast, all that's governmentally regulated to make sure the food is safe. The clothing will not be flammable and dangerous for you to wear. When you walk out the door and you get into your car and you drive into the street, you're entering into government regulation because those streets are regulated. Is your trash going to get picked up? Are the roads that you drive going to be safe? Are your children, when they go to school, going to be taught well and protected in school? All that's government, folks. You go to work, how you get paid, the amount you get paid, if you get paid for overtime or not, what's all that? That's law in government. When you walk home at night, when you get home and you rest and you go to bed and you watch TV, government regulates television. When you play on the internet and you're in your, you know, you're chatting and you're doing all of that, there are regulations as to your freedom of speech. All of these issues, when you go to court, I mean, when you go to church, on weekends or you go to your synagogue, the First Amendment right is a governmentally imposed right, right? So I just want people to understand that everything you do, no matter how much you say I'm an island unto myself, it's just not true. That you exist within an ecosystem of governmental regulation. And you want good people, people who won't think that the reason why they're in office is to beat up on Black Lives Matters, who won't think that the reason why they're in office is to clamp down on critical race theory, which turns out to be, in their estimation, any teaching of African-American history, any teaching of women's history, any teaching of Latino history, any teaching of anything about LGBTQIA rights, who circumvent and want to limit the First Amendment every day want to fight with us over these issues. So I want you to understand how critical your voice is. If we believe that we have power, because ultimately the vote is about your personal power. If we believe that our existence in this earth should count. If we believe that we should be afforded and accorded the personal dignity that we're all entitled to as human beings, if we believe that equal rights should be enshrined within law, if we believe that poverty should be eradicated, that people should not have to worry about food insecurity, housing insecurity. We know that in California, we have a huge problem with affordable housing, huge problem with homelessness. We need to have governments that are responsive, that are able to come up with humane solutions, humane policies. We use our voice to ensure that by who we vote for every time we vote. And that's my last point. Don't let anybody tell you that you only vote presidential. Really, you know, the president has his authority. The midterm election decides so much. 
Folks forget that the reason why we got this regimen of voter suppression is because in 2008, people voted for Barack Obama. Of course, there was a blacklash, but more importantly, in 2010, when the midterm election rolled around, some 25 million people, you heard me, 25 million people who voted in 2008 did not vote in 2010. 30 state legislatures became solidly a one party within months of their the election. By January 1st, some 40 states started introducing voter suppression legislation that said for those who didn't vote, fine, we're going to keep you from voting in the future. And all of this voter suppression that you see that we are struggling with to this day got its life out of people not voting in the 2010 midterm elections. And it has been, and what they've done is created artificial barriers to make sure that people who are of color, people who are youth voters, people who are single women, uh, you know, I'm just talking about the targets and poor people. Believe it or not, there are people who are opposed to poor people voting. You don't understand that, but it's true. They write about how the right to vote should only be for those with property, those who are gainfully employed, all of this. And we don't understand the ideologies, the elitism, the anti-poor, uh, you know, uh, and not to mention anti-Black, anti-Latino and anti-women's you know, rights, uh, people who are actively every day trying to take over our government. Yet, we don't want to vote midterms. We think somehow the midterm is unimportant because the money that goes into presidentials is severely extensive. You know, probably 80% more than you see that goes into midterm elections. And it is so critical that we are actively thinking always not only of voting, but we're thinking about voting whole ballot, the whole ballot, not just the top races, thinking about who's going to be the sheriff, thinking about who's going to be the on the city council, thinking about who's who are these judges that you've been asked to elect in so many places. You got to think about it because every time you read about an injustice, you got to say, did my vote? Did my vote try to impact that? Did my vote try to stop that? Did my vote prevent that? Did my vote empower the good things that you read about, that you're proud of, that government is doing? Think about that all the time because your vote is more than just a personal exercise. It is about not only expressing your personal power, but it's about collectively empowering a nation to be at its best at all respects, especially when it comes to government. I hope this is helpful to you. I hope that you'll think about it, that when you're out there and people are telling you that it doesn't matter if you vote, yet they're complaining all the time, remind them but that the connection between their complaints and they're not voting. When they tell you it doesn't matter, you tell them, of course it matters, and give them some of these examples. Make sure that people know that we want them to vote because we have surveyed Americans. Guess what they tell us? You know that 51 million Americans who aren't registered? 
they tell us they don't register because they don't think anybody cares if they vote, that anybody wants them to vote. So in automatic registration states, you have huge voter turnout, over 70 plus percent, because people say they know the government wants them to vote. This is so important that you and me and everybody else in the private sector that we have to take you know, participation and tell people that we know that their vote counts, that we know that they are important. We know that they, when they participate, they make this world better. So it's up to us to lead the way always. It's up to us to you know, empower people. It's up to us to do the hard work. And every single person you know who's registered, make sure that they are voting. Because some 35% of people sit that, sit it out uh, every, every single election and midterms are worse. Uh, so let's do it, people. Let's get out the word. Let's vote midterm, November 8th. Thank you so much. This is Margaret Prescott. I convene Policy and Education Working Group. And Reverend Liz Theo Harris is indeed in the house. It's inspiring to go right after Attorney Arnwine. There's so much information that she has to share. And indeed, I just want to affirm of the power of people, you know, engaging in voting this midterm and beyond. So I want to think a little bit about what it means for us to be trying to mobilize and organize and register and engage people for a movement that votes. And for those of you that have joined some of our national coordinating committee calls with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, we close those out in many seasons, but definitely as we approach elections with a powerful song, don't you want to vote? Yes, I'm going to vote. And then we talk about voting for justice and for health care and for living wages. This week and the week before, we, we closed out some of these pep rallies, you know, where where we had Ms. Yara Allen and others from our movement singing this, as we then also encouraged you all and everyone across this country to sign up and register to be a part of this powerful text banking system and plan that the Poor People's Campaign has going on right now, touching 5 million poor and low-income, low-propensity voters before the midterms as a part of our effort to, you know, what we say, enliven and enlarge the electorate of, of low-income voters and transform the political landscape. Now, I cannot say this too much. Poor and low-income people make up one-third, one-third of not just eligible voters, but of registered voters, and in many key places, upwards of 40 45%. And so this block of voters, poor and low-income people across geography, across states, across race, across gender, across sexuality, across religion, has the power to actually put people into office that are going to enact the kind of demands that we so desperately need. But instead of the kind of culture wars and sacrifice zones that are kind of littering our current political landscape, we in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, are insisting that the issues most important to the daily lives of the majority of people in this country they're on the ballot this fall. So we're talking about living wages are on the ballot. Health care is on the ballot. Addressing this climate chaos, it's on the ballot. Programs of social uplift, the rights of women and LGBTQ people and immigrants, all of that is on the ballot and must be front and center in our elections. 
we know that we have the power to transform the society from the bottom up. I'm sure many people that are on this have read the multiple studies the Poor People's Campaign has produced. The one that we did in 2018 that showed that 16 key states, that if between one and 19% more of eligible poor and low-income voters participated in the election exceed the margin of victory, they can shift the political landscape and political calculus in the states across the country. What we were hearing from Attorney Arnwine, what, what I think many of us know, is that a rolling coup of voter suppression laws have been enacted over the last two years. And that was on top of two presidential elections and multiple midterm elections that were without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. The newest voter suppression laws mean that 55 million voters who participated in the 2020 elections may be disenfranchised from the means they previously used to vote this fall. What we know is that journalists are reporting that the majority of Republican candidates in the midterms are election deniers. And what we all know and can hear from policy researchers are that people are suffering. And this is without a federal minimum wage increase for 13 years. This is without the expansion significantly of healthcare in the worst public health crisis in a century. This is as our pandemic social programs and emergency funds are expiring. And all of these policies and more are thrusting millions of people, including 4 million children back below the poverty line. We can say nothing but in this moment, with all of these crises that are going on, it's clear that the midterm elections matter. And I'm a preacher and biblical scholar. So I, I want to bring a word about, you know, what our sacred texts have to say about our voice and our vote, and especially the power. I want to talk about the power of poor and low income people today but also across history. A central theme of the sacred texts in across traditions, but including the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian Bible, is the agency of those that are most impacted by injustice, making decisions about the policies and politicians that will help determine our daily lives. Yet there is this false moral narrative of white Christian nationalism that's being used by some to frame these midterm elections. You know, we have politicians like General Michael Flynn and his Reawaken American tour. We have Josh Hawley at the NatCon who said that without the Bible, there is no America. So we have seen Christian nationalism on full display this election cycle. But we know that these narratives are antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. So for many of the 140 million poor and low-income people in this, the richest country in the history of the world, as well as the faith bodies that represent millions of people that are aligned with our movements for justice and freedom, we know that the real moral issues of our day that are on the ballot are healthcare and living wages, immigrant rights, the rights of women and people of color, and those that have been marginalized by the status quo. And so we know that instead of this kind of confronting this white Christian nationalism, we must instead use these sacred texts as our guide. For those that are in religious congregations that follow the lectionary, there's the parable of the persistent widow, a woman who takes power and voice and vote and persistence and justice into our own hands. You know, there's the story of the woman with the flow of blood who doesn't wait for others to save her. She's been dispossessed, spent what little she had on doctors and on a broken health system, and she still isn't healed. 
you know, we have stories of, of others throughout history and throughout our Bible who take action, take action much like the actions that the National Union of the Homeless take, where you only get what you're organized to take, or the kind of words and inspiration of someone like Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. More than a hundredth birthday would have been about uh, 10 days ago. Uh, she says, you can pray until you faint, but until unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. Fannie Lou Hamer, the National Union of the Homeless, the Persistent Widow, the Woman with the Flow of Blood, you know, so many today and throughout history get up and they do something. They, they you know, follow the traditions that are set out in our constitution and in other kind of policy and moral documents that, that talk about right living, talk about justice, talk about freedom. And what we do is we embody that kind of moral, political, and epistemological agency and say, we are not going to wait. We are not going to be silent. We're not going to be unseen or unheard anymore. We're going to put ourselves out there and we're going to, you know, vote like our lives depend on it because indeed they do. In the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And it is powerful to get to do it with folks from all across the country, including from the great state of California, where people are organizing and mobilizing and making our voices heard. Now, I want to encourage folks that if you still have some time, we have text banks going on six times a day, seven days a week. And we have had more than 500 people join those text banks, and, and we would like to have 500 more so that we can touch maybe even more than the 5 million poor and low-income voters that we have set out to touch. I have another message, which is very connected to what our Trinity Arnwine was telling us. What we know is that it is of the 85 million poor and low-income people who are registered, registered to vote, in 2020, only about 50 million people voted. Now, in any state, if we look at the margin of victory, if poor and low-income people were to vote together, we exceed that. We absolutely have the power. And so the question is, are we going to use that power? Are we gonna vote with that power? And are we gonna transform the society so that we can lift from the bottom and everybody can rise? And as we always say, forward together, not one step back. Hi, this is Gloria Steinem. This is Joni Mitchell. This is Brother Cornell West, and you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott. Check us out on Facebook. We are also on SoundCloud. You can look for us there. Look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we'd like to give a shout out to voters all across the United States. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our listeners south of the border. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at SoTrueRadio. So today is voting day. We are now going to continue our voting day special featuring speakers from the recent webinar organized by the California Poor People's Campaign as part of their effort to get out the vote. It's now my pleasure to introduce lifelong activist and progressive journalist Alan Minsky. His activism began in college with union solidarity and opposition to U.S. involvement in Central America. 
Among other work, he organized for Occupy Wall Street, and he's always been active in the media democracy movement. He was a founder of LA Indie Media, program director at KPFK Radio from 2009 to 2018, and he coordinated Pacifica Radio's national coverage of elections. In 2014, Alan began working with Progressive Democrats of America, a grassroots political action committee to advance progressive policies and help elect progressive candidates. He's now its executive director. So welcome, Alan. So thank you so very much. And I am here in my capacity as the executive director of our uh, nonpartisan 501c4 organization, Progressives for Democracy in America, which I started. I'm so honored to follow Barbara Arnwine, Reverend Dr. Theo Harris, and Margaret Prescott, who I worked alongside and learned so much from at KPFK from Margaret for about two decades. And Margaret is a true inspiration. I have been writing an article about uh, this election cycle. It'll probably be published on Common Dreams around midweek. The working title of it is, No Person of Conscience Should Sit Out This Election. Democracy and the very principle of a society of equals are on the midterm ballot. And we are in a crisis of democracy, as Barbara Arnwine outlined. And what is true is that at the federal level, there is pending legislation, almost was passed in the last Congress, effectively it failed to pass by two votes, the votes of senators from West Virginia and Arizona. And so in this election, there is a very real opportunity to pass legislation that the vice president has confirmed um, she will oversee a filibuster carve-out that will allow the passage of this legislation with a majority vote in the Senate. On the one hand, it would be a codification of Roe versus Wade and a version of what was originally called the For the People Act or the Freedom to Vote Act. These are extremely historical pieces of legislation for very many reasons. But democracy wasn't reflective of my politics at the time, but democracy was central to that. And I don't think that was an insincere inclusion. Constrained and contained democracy, one they probably trusted could be dominated by elites through power and money, but nonetheless, democracy. Even that democracy that we have today is under threat. And with that, the promise that has always been a part of America for all of the crimes of American history, that this is meant to be a democratic society, a society of equals, a society that doesn't have an established codified aristocratic class that doesn't have a monarchy and that in the in the form that we understood America was developing towards certainly through the civil rights movement of the 1960s was a society in which everyone would be equal nobody was anybody's betters that is under threat in the United States of America as it is under threat in a set of authoritarian regimes across the world that have sort of this sort of form of anti-democratic coups in the world where it's almost entirely replicated with the election of a recent president here, whereby someone is actually elected through the democratic system, but then once they're in power, they set out to basically pervert the democratic process to assure their continued rule. Um, America 
um, probably defying all of our expectations that this kind of lurch towards authoritarian right-wing anti-democratic uh, reality could occur here so quickly, we, we came frighteningly close to this in recent years and are still at a very high risk of this taking place. In fact, as Barbara also said, the um, right-wing uh, anti-democratic counteroffensive has been ongoing across the country in states um, at an incredible pace over the last two years. And what the John Lewis Voting Rights Act will do will be an assertion of America as a democratic society. The codification of Roe v. Wade will be an assertion that we are truly a society of equals, that nobody can tell anybody that they have control over their body. This is on the ballot at the federal level of this year. And it's a very, very important election. And I fear, and I fear in the article that I was composing, that there is not adequate awareness among the general population that the stakes are so high and that the message of this urgency is not getting out to them. So I wanna say there could be nothing more important than getting the very people that the Poor People's Campaign is focused upon getting to vote, to vote in this election. Um, I'm going to share two links in um, the chat. Um, they are the first things that come up on a Google search when you ask, how do poor people vote versus rich people in the United States of America? And one is from a think tank at Tufts University called Econo Fact that seems like a, a neutral and trustworthy source. And I'm gonna put that in right now. And on that link, you will see a chart that is a straight line. The higher voter participation, the higher the income level, the lower at the lowest. It's the 2016 election, okay? Um, and then um, I'm gonna put in an article from a, another study of the 2016 election of the further erosion of democracy and the way to that is to do exactly what the poor people's campaign is doing in california and around the country i can think of nothing that merits support as much as this project we need to create a democratic society in which everybody participates in the democracy and the people who are at a higher rate not participating in the democracy are the people who can be most empowered by the democratic process as Barbara Arline was, was um, uh, outlining. We live in a highly materialistic society and the rich have tremendous advantages above and beyond the fact that they participate more in democratic elections. We need to have the voices of the people who can use the power of government to um, support their needs, to lift their communities, to create more, economic equality in the society. And I suppose I could, uh, I'll end on two points. Um, uh, uh, the level of wealth inequality we have in the United States is not conducive to a healthy democracy. And the probably the clearest route to correcting that is to have the poor Americans who are the poorer Americans 
the working class Americans and low income Americans who are not voting to vote and to have their voices be heard through our representative democracy. Because that will salvage our democracy if their interests are lifted up in the political process. And then lastly, I want to actually recommend a book uh, that I pulled out today in preparation of what I was going to say at this event. And I'm surprised to have accessed it and to grabbed it. Um, it's actually by Tom Hartman, the radio host. And it's called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Because what's at stake at the federal level with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the codification of Roe v. Wade is what Hartman points out is a necessary corrective to the way that the American political system has evolved away from what the intention was in the Constitution that the legislature would make the laws not have the laws created by an activist judiciary. So what is going on in Congress right now is setting up as a battle between the forces of democracy and the forces of what are now an entrenched right-wing judiciary. And to use democracy, to uh, use democracy and participation in democracy in the election of uh, uh, representatives who will defend democracy by creating laws and therefore challenge against this offensive from the right-wing judiciary. So this is a very historic moment in uh, the Democratic Republic of the United States. Um, it's a very historic, historic moment in terms of the status of democracy in our society. And the best way I can think to rectify the situation, if we really look at the root of it, is to make sure that we have equal participation across all income levels in our society, which means aggressively going out and um, getting out the vote from poor communities in the United States, registering them to vote when the game is registering the vote, and that means supporting the Poor People's Campaign across the United States and right here in California. So um, thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to be here. And uh, please uh, step up and do the text banking, donate what you can, and tell everybody you know to get involved in supporting the Poor People's Campaign and this GOTV initiative. Thank you. I have the honor of introducing our next speaker, Trini Rodriguez. Some of you probably already know Trini. She's been an activist her whole life, also an educator and a writer. She has a podcast. She's a co-founder of Tia Chuchas, which is a community gathering place, and a cultural center in the Northeast San Fernando Valley here in Los Angeles County. It's a really a gift to our community here. She serves on the California Poor People's Campaign Coordinating Committee. And I think all of us who work with her truly, truly value her commitment, her perseverance, rounded thinking. It's really good to see that, that we have so many people joining us today. And I know that all of us here will continue to, to rally others to, to continue to follow the efforts of the Poor People's Campaign because it is so important. And I was asked to take a moment to, to have us consider the importance of the Latino vote and what it means for us, not just today, but just historically and going forward. It is, it is interesting that I was asked to do this before the fiasco that really had us quite shaken by the type of rhetoric, just backroom dealing that was going on, supposedly by people that we had 
expected to be representative of the Latino community and our interests. And we heard on a recorded tape how wrong we were. So it's just one of those reminders that, you know, with all the efforts that were made to get Latino representation. And I know that in the San Fernando Valley, we were quite important to representation, increasing uh, the Latino representation in California. And then we come to see this. It's discouraging. And at the same time, what it is, it's, it's eye-opening. And whenever you get your eyes open, it's important for us to, to take a full look at what it means for us, because it's a challenge. The challenge is that we cannot go based on illusions about who we elect. And we also have to hold them accountable. And we also need to do our part to to change things when when they aren't changing in the way that we would expect them to and that we need them to. So first of all, I just wanted to start by pointing out what do we mean by the importance of the Latino vote? Across the United States, that an estimated 34.5 million Latinos are eligible to vote this year, making Latinos the fastest growing racial and ethnic group in the United States electorate. The number of Latino eligible voters increased by 4.7 million since 2018. And that's pretty high. In the Poor People's Campaign, we often talk about the 140, the 140 that are low income and poor. And of course, that includes a large percentage of Latinos. And it was also mentioned, I believe, by someone today that there's a, we really have to take a look at the number of young people under, under 40, but that also make up the electorate. For instance, in California, um, about a quarter of all Latino eligible voters are young. That's how many reside in the United States. There's younger voters that are to be eligible overall. The median age is 39 for Latino voters, for eligible voters. Those are just the numbers. And as we know, numbers are potential. It's not actual. Those are eligible voters. How many of those voters will vote? How many of them will register? How many of them, when they do vote, will vote in the interests that are informed and educated about the kind of things that Alan Minsky and some of the other speakers have pointed out. That's what that's really for us to continue to influence so that we don't get lost in the kind of very superficial identity politics where we vote in Latinos, but we don't hold them to the kind of things that will in fact improve the, the conditions and the well-being of not just Latinos, but of all our brothers and sisters who are in the same conditions as we are. To me, it's, it's really important to keep those things in mind. And that's why I really am so encouraged by how quickly the Poor People's Campaign is growing, but also how quickly we're learning to really activate and do the kind of things that are going to turn out the vote. I'm impressed on how many people have been joining the, the calls to to get out the vote and, and influence already, you know, towards the 5 million that, that is our target. And I actually feel that we're going to surpass that. One of the things, too, that I think that we shouldn't forget, Latinos a lot of times are influenced by the type of experiences they've had in their home countries, or they hear about the, the situations in home countries. And it's quite discouraging to see how quickly elected officials can be corrupted. It kind of taints and makes people doubtful that their vote will count. But as, as the first speaker pointed out, everything, everything that, that elected officials do and that governance does has an impact on us. We don't have the luxury of standing aside because we're discouraged or because we, we, we're doubtful or because we think things can't change. 
because it's been proven over history that the only time that things do change is when we act together and, and we, we support each other for the kind of things that need to, need to happen. One of those things that I found important and I think we should highlight right now is the efforts that were made for the farm workers to be able to have their, to be able to vote by ballot. And that was vetoed by Governor Newsom uh, the last time it was attempted and didn't even get to the legislator as a result. But then later there was a revved up mobilization to try to get support for for that initiative. And because of so many people, labor included, communities across California came together and rallied everyone to pressure the governor to sign that bill. And it did get signed. So even though it can be discouraging, the other thing is that we have victories that show that when we get behind something and we do it for the right reason, and it does help uh, those at the bottom, that when that happens, we all win. So it's, again, another reminder that our, our vote does count, our influence do, does count, going to the, to the polls is important, but also getting out in the streets is also important. With the kind of statements and, that were said by city council persons against the Oaxacan community, against the Black community and others, it was, it was interesting to see how quickly in organizations across uh, across the valley and across East LA, uh, in all parts of, of uh, Los Angeles, and of course we heard that people were taking stances all the way to to President Biden on on the atrocity that that represented, and so it was very clear that when we have an informed, um, responsible set of people in position to make their voice heard, that people will pressure and and force things to happen. So as we know, Nudie Martinez resigned first from her position as president of the city council, and then later as uh, just a council member, and we're waiting and there is still pressure daily. And today, in fact, again, to to have the other two council members resign. So to me, it's, it's just really important too to see that also not to forget that even though some members of the Latino community cannot vote, it doesn't mean that we can't hear their voice and we can't advocate on their behalf. We saw the Oaxacan community come out quite strong in uh, March from three miles to the city hall. And they were quite clear that they were not going to be shut down. They were not going to be discouraged and made silent by the disparaging remarks on the Oaxacan community. And there was quite a bit of support with them. So they weren't, didn't stand alone. We stood together. So to me, I, I think it's another, another example of how we have to use all avenues, again, at the polls, on the streets, to make sure that we are not silent because we have too much at stake. There's been way, way too much history of us being pressured into not speaking up, not, not having our voices heard, and, and of course, not listening to our needs and just uh, treating us as uh, essential workers, but dispensable at the same time. So I, I just wanted to say how, how important it is for us not to, not to allow our communities to feel disenfranchised and unsupported by, by the, those of us who perhaps have been practicing our, our right to vote continually but also we need to educate as, as the Poor People's Campaign is doing about the, the, the breadth of what's at stake and how we, we can, if we come together, 
we can make a difference and we will. We're out of time today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, and our board up, Gary Baca. I'd like to thank the coordinating committee of the California Poor People's Campaign for allowing us to share this audio with you and the policy and education working group of the California Poor People's Campaign who organized the Get Out the Vote webinar. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact Contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-7350-230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Remember, go vote, stay well, and be safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.